This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs.
you, ladies. Very, very good. If you would open your Bibles, please, to the very first book of the Bible and the second chapter. So where would that be? Genesis chapter 2. And while you are trying to find that, and if you don't know where that is, um, just look for it. Um, I just want to point out one thing. There is a church Labor Day picnic at Stockton Lake, and, and you'll see it there in, in your bulletin. And um, so read, read that, and that's all church. And uh, that's at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Labor Day. Uh, so that's, what, a little over a week away. And uh, just make, make sure you're planning that way if you don't have anything else to do. Today we're going to be reviewing one of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible. You've, you've heard this story. I mean, I've heard this story. We've all heard this story. Uh, however, our focus today will not be the traditional focus. We're going to look at a truth that isn't as familiar. Uh, at least it wasn't for me. Now, to help set up our lesson as well as give you some information that will help you in your own personal study of the Bible. And, and, and you know that just coming to church and hearing the Word on Sunday morning is not enough. Uh, you need to study the Word on, on your own. But um, there, there's a principle that at times is referred to as the rule of firsts. And what that means is that when something happens for the very first time in God's Word, it generally is something very, very significant. Now, obviously, all of Scripture is important. All of Scripture is inspired. Every word is important. But when there is a first, we need to stop, look, and listen because it is probably something extra special that we need to notice. Now, today we're going to look at several firsts. But the one that will anchor our thoughts is the very first command that God ever gave to mankind. And it wasn't part of the Ten Commandments. It was given way before the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, and you can read after different scholars, but at least some scholars believe that they were given around 3,400 years ago. Um, This first command, and and again, scholars differ, and and your view on this may differ, uh, differ, but probably... This first command might have been given around 6,000 years ago. Let's read about it. Here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. So here's the first command given. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Many of you know that my parents were in ministry, and so as a kid, I I grew up uh, in church all of the time. And and by the way, this is a a bit off topic, but for those of you that are parents or maybe even grandparents, and I say grandparents because, you know, today a lot of grandparents are very instrumental in in raising children, but 
For those of you that may be in a battle with your younger children or, or teens that don't want to go to church or don't want to go to youth group or don't want to go to kids clubs, and you're thinking, well, I don't want to make them bitter against the church by forcing them to go, so I'll just let them make the decision. May I kindly encourage you parents to be spiritual leaders? In fact, let me explain it this way. I, I don't know if your kids have ever resisted brushing their teeth or taking a bath. And so my question is, have you ever said, well, I don't want them to become bitter against their toothbrush, or I don't want them to become bitter against the bathtub, and so I'll just let them decide whether or not they brush their teeth or take a bath. Have you ever done that? Uh, don't think so. You know, there were plenty of times as a kid that I didn't want to go to church, but my parents made me go because they knew that it was best for me. And I'm not talking about being legal, legalistic and ridiculous and, you know, making me go every night of the week. I, I, nothing like that. But I'm, I'm thankful for the leadership of my parents that helped me understand the importance of going to church. And I'm not bitter against church. I'm not bitter against my parents because of that. They showed some spiritual leadership. You know, God has placed us as, as parents or grandparents in a leadership position to help guide our children, steer our children on the right path, which, by the way, sometimes includes making our children do some things they don't want to do, like brushing their teeth, taking a bath, and yes, even going to church and youth group and kids' activities. But anyway, I grew up and spent a lot of time in church. And without sounding arrogant, because I don't mean it that way, but because of my upbringing, I happen to know quite a bit about the church. I know some good, I know some bad, and I know plenty of ugly. You think you've seen hypocrisy in the church? Again, without bragging, I think I've probably seen more than you have. You think you've seen politics in the church? I'm sorry to say, but I think I've seen more. You think you've seen church problems? I have too. I've seen literal fights, men punching it out, Ladies using brooms to bop people over the head. I bet most of you haven't seen that. It could have easily passed for a match in the World Wrestling Federation. You know, I, I serve on our denominational world missions board, and it seems like I always draw the short straw and get chosen to go to churches in other countries where there are problems, and I'm com commissioned to try to broker a peace settlement. And, and about a year and a half ago, they sent me to another country, and I was trying to help them work through some church problems, and we were in an all-church meeting, and they were literally, the people were screaming at each other. And, and so I stood up. I tried to get control of this meeting that was way out of control. And, and, uh, and I said, let's all get on our knees in prayer. And uh, not just pray, but get on our knees in prayer. And, and I was so thankful. They calmed down during prayer. But as soon as I finished the prayer, they were back to screaming at each other again. So I know all about the ugly games that some churches play. But then, but then I know plenty of good in the church as well. Thank God. I, you know, I know the songs. I know the old hymns. Amazing grace and, and how great thou art. And I know the old courses. I even know Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Anyone else know that song? And then I know some of the contemporary songs. And, and I love learning more and and Jim and I and Pastor Ken, we went to a conference this past week in, in Nashville. And, 
And we went to the Grand Ole Opry, but, but it was Christian music being played and, and, and sung in the Opry House that night. And you had the Gettys and Chain and Chain and a bunch of other Christian artists. So I, uh, I, I know a lot of songs in the church, but I learned some new ones this past week. And then also because of my upbringing, when it comes to the Bible, even, even though I am far from being a scholar of God's Word, not even close, yet I can identify most stories in the Bible. Now, I took that scenic route to say that when it comes to the story that we are studying today, I know it. I grew up hearing where, where God told Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and most of you know that story as well. But the question that I think a lot of people have when, when, when it comes to the story that we're studying today is, is okay, God, you created this amazing garden for Adam and Eve that was perfect in every way, and, and you gave attention to every detail, how, how the garden was going to be watered without rain and without thunderstorms and, and lightning and, and, and all of that stuff. The garden was a literal paradise. And Adam and Eve only had to worry about one rule. There was only one no-no, and that was that they were not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the question that, that a lot of people have is, okay, if, if God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat that fruit, why did he put that tree there in the first place? You know, sometimes our, our little kids, if, if there's a matter of temptation, we just take it away. Why fight with them? And, and so why didn't God just leave the tree out of the garden because it was almost like a cat and mouse game where, where God was tempting them and tantalizing them and said, okay, guys, let's see how long you can stay away from that tree. Well, they stayed away for three verses. <laughs> but why didn't God just remove the tree and the temptation? Well, the reason was that God did not want to create puppets. Because as puppets, we would not have had that ability to make the choice to love God. God did not want people to, to just love him out of obligation. He wanted people to love him because they chose to do so, not because they had to do so. And if you've been raised in church, you've heard that preached many times. But what I haven't heard preached much, and I've been praying that the Lord would help me to get this truth across this morning, The name of the forbidden tree was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and so what would happen if Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree? Well, we, we read that. You know, it says in a couple of things there in verse 17, it says they would die. Or was that a physical death? No, it was a spiritual death. But, but the second thing that would happen is that by eating that fruit, as the name indicates, they would begin to have knowledge of good and evil. You say, what does that mean? Well, it simply means that Adam and Eve would begin to have an awareness and a knowledge of things that God didn't intend for them to have. They would begin to have a knowledge of pain and, and suffering. They would begin to have knowledge of the shame from being naked. Okay, then you say, what would have happened if Adam and Eve would not have eaten from the tree? Well, they would not have had that knowledge of pain and suffering. But, but then, and this was kind of a new concept for me, that they would have not had that expanded knowledge also that they received from eating the fruit. You, you say, well, 
they wouldn't have had expanded knowledge. Would that have handicapped them in their mental capacity? No, 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 no. And this is where we're getting to the crux of the matter. And I hope you're still tracking with me. This is the focus of the lesson. They wouldn't have had that expanded knowledge, but they also wouldn't have needed that knowledge. Because listen, God had in mind between them and himself such a high level of intimacy to where God would come to the garden and walk with them and talk with them and give them the necessary knowledge as they needed it. He had in mind a close intimacy between God, the Creator, and mankind. Well, we know the story. Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit, and what happened? This is really fascinating. And, and, and if you choose, you can look at this as Bible trivia, and that's okay. Um, or you can look at this as something very significant. But it says in Genesis chapter 3, move on to the next chapter, verse 23. So the Lord God, the ate of the fruit, Lord God banished Adam and his wife from the Garden of Eden. He sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. So now Adam's got to go to work for a living. After banishing them from the garden, the Lord God stationed mighty angelic beings to the east. Catch that, the east of Eden. So Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate of the forbidden fruit. They were banished from the garden. And what direction did they go? East. Now, now the part that is fascinating to me, and, and I learned this from my study time, but after Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and they went east, away from God's ideal... This seems to become the theme for the book of Genesis. Mankind keeps moving east. Further and further away from the garden and further and further away from God. You know, to illustrate this, we look in Genesis chapter 4, and this is where tragedy strikes Adam and Eve's family. Some jealousy developed over, and listen to this, over worship styles. That's right, it was a worship war. Remember the, the type of sacrifice that was brought to God? And, and that's a topic for another day. But, but Cain and another first murders his brother Abel. Cain decides he better run because the people then wanted to kill him in retaliation. And so Cain goes on the run and locates and relocates. And, and do you have any idea which direction he goes? Let's read it in Genesis 4, move to the next chapter, chapter 16. Or, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod. What direction? East of Eden. So Adam and Eve sinned. They were banned from the garden. They went east of the garden. Now their son Cain is going further east. Mankind is getting further away from the ideal that God had established. But this trend continues. We come to Genesis chapter 11 where human rebellion against God is, has reached a new level. And, and, and again, it's fascinating to me. In, in Genesis chapter 11 verse 2, it says that during this time of rebellion, the people were migrating eastward. And in other words, they were continuing to go farther away from the garden that represented intimacy with God. And those of you that were raised in church, you know this culminated in an act of arrogance towards God, the building of the Tower of Babel. 
Well, after the Tower of Babel, remember how Abraham and his nephew Lot were in partnership with each other. Their flocks were multiplying. The shepherds were squabbling over available grass. Remember that, that account. And so Abraham said, Lot, we need to go our separate ways so our livestock can have adequate grazing. And he said, Lot, you choose the way you want to go. I'll take the other. And do you remember where Lot went? Let's look. Genesis 13. Lot chose that land for himself, the Jordan Valley, to the east, which led him to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God eventually had to step in and rain down fire and brimstone from heaven because the level of sin had reached a level that God could no longer tolerate. So the book of Genesis began with mankind in the Garden of Eden having close intimacy with God. And, and God would come down in the cool of the day, as the Bible says, and, and spend time with them and fellowship with them and walk with them and talk with them. But once they sinned, there was the continual progression of moving farther and farther away from the intimacy that God wanted to have with his children. But thank God, we see this trend temporarily reversed through a man named Abraham. And, and some of you would remember how God issued a call to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to go to an unknown land. And Abraham said, God, I will trust you. I will obey you. And, and, and what's interesting is Abraham begins to follow and obey God. Do you know what direction God takes him? You want to guess? He goes west. Now, this may just be trivia. Maybe coincidence, but Abraham is going back towards the garden. He's going back to that place of trusting God, that place of intimacy, that place of walking with God, Jehovah. Let me give you one last example. In the building of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, God specifically tells the Israelites to build the entrance of the temple on the east side of the temple, which means that when they walk into the temple, and the temple was representative of God's presence. Do you know what direction they're going? They're going west. Now, uh, listen to me. I know you can take this kind of symbolism way too far. Symbolism is interesting. You can't base theology on symbolism. You can't base doctrine on symbolism. But one thing I know for certain is that ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and mankind began moving away from intimacy with God, that God's goal has been to bring mankind back to a place of intimacy, to a place of shalom, which we've always translated shalom as meaning peace. And that's the most basic translation of shalom for those of us who are non-Jews. But I actually researched the word shalom. And if you dig into the original Hebrew word for shalom, it has a deeper meaning. And, and shalom is found more than 200 times in the Old Testament. And if you dig under the surface, you find that it really means to be whole or complete. Shalom means a place of wholeness. And that happens only through intimacy with God. And the question for all of us today is, which path are we on? Are we on the path of shalom, the path that will lead to wholeness and intimacy with God? Are we heading further and further away from God? Well, there's something else I want to point out here. We, we talked about the rule of firsts. 
And I pointed out the first command, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We talked about the first sin. Adam and Eve did exactly what God told them not to do. We talked about the first murder. But then God gives us another first. He gives us his first response to sin. And this is so significant. How did God respond to the first sin? You know, he had every right to snap his fingers, just wipe them off the face of the earth and say, you guys are history. I told you not to touch that tree. You lasted three verses. Say goodbye. But God in his mercy didn't do that. How did he respond? Well, he asked a question. Now, why would he ask a question? He's God. He knows all things before we answer. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, he asked the question, Adam, where are you? And of course, that was just a rhetorical question because God knew exactly where Adam was. But in asking that question, God was really asking, Adam, why did you leave me? We, we had such a wonderful, intimate relationship here in the garden. Remember those conversations we had in the cool of the day, that fellowship? Where did you go? Where did you go? God's first response to the first sin of breaking the first command was not just to zap them like we would have done. It's almost like God's heart is breaking and he's saying, Son, where are you? Where did you go? Why are you hiding? Well, Adam and Eve would come out of hiding and say, God, we hid because we're naked. That led to the second question God asked, "Um, who told you you were naked? Eating the fruit of knowledge of good and evil had brought them that awareness and had created a sense of shame. And then God asked the third question, Adam, did you eat of that forbidden fruit? And and it's interesting because here the excuses begin. Adam says, well, God, I, I'll admit I did eat of the fruit, but the woman you gave me, she's the one that brought the fruit back to me. I ate it. In other words, God, it's really her fault. And, and actually it goes back to you because you gave her to me. Well, then God turned to Eve and asked the fourth, fourth question, is it true? How could you do such a thing? And well, Eve also justified her action and said, yeah, God, I did do it, but the serpent tricked me. Or today we'd have just said the devil made me do it. And preachers always say this, but, uh, you know, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. (sighs) Sorry, it's so bad. Forgive me. And I'm sure the whole time God was thinking, why? Why? You had the perfect life. You know, we don't have the perfect life here. They had the perfect life. I mean, no pain, no suffering. God said you had everything you could ever want. Why did you disobey my voice? Why did you listen to another voice? Why did you feel you had to hide? And by the way, just as kind of an aside here, here's a way to distinguish God's voice over Satan's voice. If the voice is calling you and urging you to go into isolation or hiding, that's probably not the voice of God. So if you ever feel an urge, you know, I just want to kind of get away and 
isolate myself from the body of Christ, that's probably not the voice of God. Because God's voice calls you out from hiding. He calls you to become part of the family of God. But when you study the history of mankind down through the ages, not much has changed. We're still trying to hide. We're still running. We're still broken. And throughout the Old Testament, God kept trying to raise up prophets to fix this broken world, but it seemed like many times, and instead of those prophets being part of the solution, they would become part of the problem. And man kept getting farther and farther and farther away from God. But thank God, finally in the book of Isaiah, like a beacon in a dark night, we find a ray of hope. We read a prophecy of someone who would come that would restore that shalom, that peace, that that wholeness, that intimacy that would be broken. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, in a very familiar scripture, it says, For unto us a child is born. Remember, this is a prophecy hundreds of years before it happened. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And I looked up that word just to make sure You know what that word is? Shalom. The prince of shalom. And this prince of peace would be able to heal broken and messed up people and make us clean. And something I find interesting in the Old Testament, every time something unclean came in contact with something clean, the clean would become unclean. The unclean always won. That's the Old Testament. That's why there were so many rules. Well, you know what? If you're clean, you can't touch the unclean because you will become unclean. But when Jesus showed up, there was a drastic 180 degree shift because every time someone dirty came in contact with Jesus, what happened? They became clean. All things passed away. They became new creatures in Christ Jesus. And I'm afraid that many people think they're still living in the Old Testament. You know, I'm not good enough. I'm too dirty for God. Hey, you can't be too dirty for God. My dad, and some of you would remember, dad used to say that God has more grace than the devil has sins. You can't sin so much that grace cannot cleanse you. You can't be too broken for God to fix you. You know, the Japanese have a process by which they repair broken dishes, and it's called kintsugi. And and what they do is to take strong lacquer and and put gold or or, or silver dust in it, and they mix it up and apply it to where the break is, and they glue it back together again. And and it's just absolutely stunning as far as the beauty. Look at that. That's That's where it was broken. Adds so much to it. Then we've got another picture. The the place where the break was is now a place of beauty. That's where your eye is drawn. And that's what Jesus does. The world tells you if you're broken, then you're damaged goods. But Jesus says if you're broken, then at the very place where you were broken, he will heal you, and that will become the most glorious part about you. 
And something else, when, when a wound heals, what does it turn into? A scar. And think how different a, a wound is from a scar. A wound hurts. It's sensitive. It's painful. You try to protect it. A scar, it generally doesn't hurt anymore. In fact, a scar tells a story. I told you this story a, a few years back, but it illustrates what I want to say, and so just bear with me. I have a scar on my chest, and, and don't worry, I'm not going to do any show and tell this morning on that, uh, just the tell part, but there's a story behind my scar. When I was in college, I was playing football with some guys in an area where we weren't supposed to play football, and I know you can't imagine that I would ever break rules or anything like that. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, we were playing football in the center of the lawn that led to the dorm that I called home at that time, and there was a sundial right in the middle of that area, and the sundial had a really long and sharp point, and the sundial was on some concrete, uh, kind of a pedestal that was about waist high, and then around that sundial was a decorative border that wasn't very tall, but um, kind of supposed to keep people out of that area. Uh, I was running for a pass. I had my eye on the ball, like I was supposed to, doing everything right, and I didn't realize that I was that close to the sundial. Uh, and I tripped on that little border, decorative border, and um, I, I just fell with my full weight onto, um, you know, the sharp point of, of that sundial. And, and, and I got the point that day. And immediately, those nearby, those who were playing football, knew that I probably needed some medical attention because that sharp point had gone through my chest, through my rib cage, and punctured my lung. And and I don't remember this, but it seems like there might have been a gurgling sound that kind of scared some of them, and I, they overreacted and called 911. <laughs> and I actually looked it up. I didn't remember when 911 was formed. I thought, did they actually call 911? But 911 was, was available at that time, just so you know. But it wasn't long until I was in an ambulance speeding to the hospital, and Obviously, I lived through that experience, but I have a nice scar reminding me of that painful moment. Now, I told you that simply to tell you that that scar not only tells a story, but it also means that that wound has completely healed and doesn't hurt anymore. And in life, we all have wounds. But some people don't ever find healing for their wound. They, they talk about it. They relive it. They get mad at whoever caused the wound, but they never find healing. God wants to come and heal your wound, and he wants to turn that wound into a scar where it no longer hurts. And let me tell you how that can happen. By getting back to a relationship with Jesus Christ where there is intimacy. What does that do? We get our eyes off of our hurt and get our eyes onto Jesus. Let me uh, wrap up our study with a story that ties everything together. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has resurrected. Some of you would remember this. He comes alongside two men on the road to Emmaus who didn't know Jesus had come back to life. And these men had been followers of Jesus. They were really down because they think that Jesus is still dead and and for some reason, when Jesus walked up to them, and I don't know exactly why, but they were kept from recognizing who he really was. And Jesus says, guys, why are you so down? Why are you so troubled? And, and the question kind of sets them off. And, 
And they said, are, are, are you kidding? You must be the only one that doesn't know what has happened. Have you been living in a cave? To which Jesus could have said, well, yeah, the last three days I have. But, but they go on and say, you know, we followed this Jesus for three years and thought he was the Messiah. Three days ago, he was crucified. And, and we feel like we wasted three years of our life. How can we have been so duped? Well, this unidentified man begins to go through the Old Testament. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament back then. And began trying to help them understand that this was supposed to happen. Jesus was supposed to die. And if you're familiar with the story, verse 28 says, as they were nearing Emmaus, which means they had possibly walked with him a couple of hours, and, and they're getting close to home and, and, and still not recognizing him. They, they say, it's evening. Why don't you come in and have a meal with us? And, and this stranger named Jesus, whom they didn't understand was Jesus yet, he, he said, sure, why not? Jesus walks in. Listen to this. He sits down. He breaks the bread, gives thanks, and right at that instant, their eyes were opened. And they saw that this man was Jesus. And I think this account gives us the two ways that people try to follow Jesus. The first way is like what happened on the road. Jesus showed up, gave those two men do you know what he was giving? He was giving facts. He was giving theology. He was giving information, prophecy, which is all that a lot of people want from Jesus. You know, Jesus, give me a blessing while I'm on the road, while I'm in the car. Maybe help me to get something out of the verse of the day from Caleb and talk to me through the music while I go through my busy day. Jesus, feed me. That's all some people want from Jesus. But the second picture is what took place when they went into the house to have a meal and, and it wasn't on the run. They sat at the table with Jesus and shared a meal. And at that moment when they shared a meal, when they sat down, whenever they took time, that's when their eyes were open and they saw Jesus for who he truly is. So as we wind things down today, how would you characterize your intimacy with God? Is your time with Jesus on the run, in the car, on the go, while on the way to work, a quick bless me, Lord, help me today. Or do you daily still your heart and say, Jesus, come into my house. Let's have a meal together. Let's spend some uninterrupted time together. Which, by the way, did you know that the invitation from Christ today is still a meal that's right revelation 320 says here i am i stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice opens the door i will come in and eat with him and he with me jesus doesn't just want a relationship with us where it's on the run and yes it's good to talk with him in the car it's good to talk with him at work it's great to have those quick moments with him but jesus wants to sit down with us at the table and have a meal Jesus wants intimacy with us. That's what he wanted with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that's what he still wants with wounded and broken and messed up people like us today. So, it's time to turn the spotlight on to each of us. Are we having intimacy 
with God. Is there that intimacy? Or is our time, just be honest, is our time with Jesus, you jump in the car, you've got a few minutes on the way to work and you're just praying to him and you get the verse from Caleb on your phone or whatever and that's, that's your time with God? Could I challenge you this week to sit down, invite Jesus in and share a meal together. Spend time together. And you know what? That's not natural to us because we're so busy. At least we think we are. Makes us feel important to say, I'm so busy. But Jesus never praises busyness. He praises those times when we stop and invite him in. Lord, I I pray that this week would be different. God, for those of us that have maybe been rushing through our time with you, I pray, God, that you would help us to slow down this week. Father, I pray that this week would be the turning point and, Lord, that we would learn to have intimacy with you. God, I know your word says pray without ceasing, which means on the run, at work, in the car. But Lord, there's also the concept of just going to our closet and just inviting you in, spending some uninterrupted time. Lord, for those here this morning that maybe they don't have that concept, they've never really developed a time, a quiet time to where it's just them and, and, and they're that they just call a timeout. Lord, for those that maybe are in that position, I pray that this week you would help them to develop this discipline. And Lord, whether it's getting up earlier or, or, or staying awake later, or whether it's shutting off the television or getting off of Facebook and just spending a few moments, uninterrupted time, and just talking with you and listening to you. And Father, I pray that you would find our walk with you just so intimate this week. Father, I pray this in your name, just heads bowed, eyes closed. There's some people that would say, Joe, God has really spoken to me. Pray for me that I would be able to develop this intimacy with God. Is there anyone that just want to, you want to raise a hand and say, pray for me, Joe. Thank you. I see your hand and your hand and your hand. Lord, you see the hearts, you see the hands. Let us know you. Let us commune with you this week. I pray this in your name. And everybody said, Amen. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.